Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Vet Story. I'm your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs. Now, the veteran we're going to meet today is 100 proof inspiration. But it's not just because he's a Medal of Honor recipient. And it's not just because he's got a great book. But the story between the lines of these pages is something so relevant that it applies to a man, woman, teen. I mean, if you're a veteran, if you're a civilian, you're a mom, you're a dad. I mean, there's something in this book that you can draw from. The book I'm talking about is called You Are Worth It, Building a Life Worth Fighting For. And its author, the Medal of Honor recipient, Marine Kyle Carpenter. Now, before I get to the words that Kyle Carpenter and his co-author Don Yeager wrote, I want to tell you a little bit about the book. On November 21st, 2010, U.S. Marine Corps Lance Corporal Kyle Carpenter was posted on a rooftop in Helmand Province, Afghanistan. Kyle's post that afternoon with his friend and fellow Marine, Nick Euphrazio, had been eerily quiet when an enemy grenade skittered across the roof. Now, with no time to escape, They had to make a split-second decision. They would both be dead. Without a second thought, Kyle jumped on the grenade. His vision went blank. His entire body went numb. He tried to move, but he could not. His gear was melted. It felt as though someone was pouring warm water all over him. He suddenly realized that the liquid was his own blood. He had made an instantaneous decision, almost purely on instinct, and it would change his life forever. Kyle's heroic act saved his brother Nick's life, but nearly cost Kyle his own. His heart flatlined three times. Wounded from head to toe, Kyle lost his right eye, as well as most of his face from the nose down, and it would take dozens of surgeries and almost three years in and out of the hospital to reconstruct his body. And from there, he began to process the rebuilding of his life. What he's accomplished in the last five years is truly extraordinary. The extensive physical rehab. He graduated from college. He's run three marathons and embarked on a new career as a motivational speaker. And in 2014, he was awarded the nation's highest decoration, the Medal of Honor, making Carpenter the youngest living recipient of the award. Now that backstory alone makes this an epic book. But it's a paragraph I found in the letter he wrote to the publisher, kind of asking to get a book deal. It's his own words on why he wanted to write this book that I was really blown away by. Kyle wrote, Leading up to this project, I had always thought about writing a book for years, but was always slightly discouraged because I didn't know how I could or would structure it. All that I knew was that I didn't want another book that focused solely on combat, Afghanistan, or the military. I wanted to write a book that transcended all boundaries between humans, from military to civilian, from CEOs to the homeless. I wanted to write a book that no matter the life story, politics, race, culture, or social status, people could pick it up, relate to it, and take something from it. And that is exactly what we'll do over the course of this podcast. I'm very pleased to introduce you to the author of You Are Worth It, Building a Life Worth Fighting For, Marine Corps veteran, Medal of Honor recipient, Kyle Carpenter. Kyle, welcome to the podcast. Hey, man. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Indeed, man. And I was uh, psyched flipping through your book knowing I was going to talk to you because, one, you are uh, an incredible Marine, and two... 
You're crazy. You are flat out nuts. <laughs> you sound like my mom, man. Come uh, on. <laughs> tell you, dude. And we're going to reveal just how crazy I think you are through some of the excerpts of your book. But I wanted to start with just uh, I don't know, some of the things that were said. Like, uh, let's take former General Jim Mattis, who said Kyle Carpenter's memoir of gallantry beyond the call of duty provides a vivid reminder that grit and valor remain American hallmarks. Um, and if that's not cool enough, you know who I really liked that said something cool about you was, I think Kyle Carpenter is one of the greatest living Americans, and I'm honored to know him. His words, though soft-spoken, are thunderous to the spirit. That was said by Zach Brown of the Zach Brown Band. You know Zach Brown? Uh, I uh, do have the pri- privilege of not only knowing Zach, but uh, calling him a friend. And uh, just so everyone knows, I mean, he is uh, has a very soft spot in his heart and is... Um, extremely supportive and loving of uh, all of our military and so yeah i mean i am so thankful and truly humbled by all of the uh, endorsements that i got obviously general mattis is is um i still can't you know completely comprehend that that i got his but yeah all, all four of my endorsements zach brown and general mattis included you know i was hesitant to actually ask those people because I know uh, for good or bad what it feels like for uh, most people that approach you um, to kind of want something in return, which a lot of times it's, you know, amazing stuff. But having a friendship with them, I didn't necessarily really want to cross that line and ask them. But I just approached them and said, listen, I wrote this book to help people. If you read it and you believe in it and you want to, you know, put your name on it and say, I think this is a good book. You know, uh, I would be honored. But, yeah, I called everyone up and all four, their response was immediate. And they just said, tell me what I can do to help. So, uh, yeah, thanks for pointing them out because uh, they, they really were great and supportive. But, yeah, it's it's, it's crazy, but uh, I am thankful I can call those people friends. That's awesome, man. So have you, like, ever hung out with Zach Brown and just, like, I don't know, he's been picking on the guitar or you guys just, like, hung out around the fire? down. I know, I know he's got that cool camp down in um, – Georgia. I forget what it's called, but it's like a like an outdoor retreat kind of place. But you ever just yeah like- yeah I believe it's Camp Southern Ground and that's um, it. Yeah, and so I actually met Zach for the first time way back during my hospital days in 2012. There was a UFC fight, and Walter Reed has an events office where you can go by, and there's literally just a sign up sheet for all these different events, and some are local in DC. Right, right. You know, Walter Reed being right right down the road from the Kaplan and, um, you know, all of that type of influence, uh, people are always donating stuff. A lot of times it's nationals and, uh, you know, Wizards tickets or plays in the area. But sometimes it's like really cool stuff all over. And they have this events office so that if you don't have a surgery on the books for a certain date and you go by there and see a cool event, you sign up for it. And so me and Actually, another fellow Marine that uh, I had recovered with at Walter Reed, he actually lost his left eye on our deployment in Afghanistan. And, of course, I lost my right. So we always joke that, like, we're a, <laughs> we're a, full, we're a full and deadly duo together and together only. But, uh, yeah, we signed up and went down there. And, you know, they told us it was good seats, but we get down there. And everyone was probably wondering as we walked closer and closer, like, what are these two banged up guys doing, uh, you know, moving towards the best seats in the house. But uh, whoever donated them, um, we were octagon side. And I had the uh, kind of mind-blowing pleasure to sit beside Zach during that fight. And, uh, you know, he was more quiet than not, but I got a good idea of, of what type of person he was and where his head was at. And, you know, it went, it went years before we reconnected. Uh, I was obviously healing and recovering and, and getting my life back figured out. Uh, but we have reconnected over the past couple of years. And, yeah, we both love to throw axes and be outside. And uh, he's just a super cool, normal dude. So I'm, I'm really happy I'm friends with him. Man, well, I'm glad I asked, dude. That's awesome. That is awesome. Yeah. All right, let's rewind a little bit. Let's rewind a lot, actually. Before the book, You Are Worth It, Building a Life Worth Fighting For. Before writing that, before ending up at Walter Reed, before any of that stuff, you were a kid who used to draw things on your chest, 
The book opens, <laughs> let me just open here with the sentence, and you tell me about it. You expand on this a little bit for me. But the book says, uh, my dad will tell you that I had more confidence than any other little kid in history. When I was still a toddler, I insisted he draw the Superman logo on my chest with a marker, not some weak, washable marker that would come off in the bathtub. <laughs> that's real, huh? Uh, yeah, no, that's 100% real. And uh, I don't know if that came before or after my uh, thinking I was the white Power Ranger phase. But, uh, yeah, I, uh, you know, I, I guess thought I was a miniature version of Superman. And so, yeah, I got my dad with permanent marker to, for a... Uh, you know, I guess extended period of time. It wasn't just like a one-time thing to draw the uh, the Superman logo on right on my the skin on my chest, and um, I guess that helped me jump a little bit higher on my bike ramps and go a little bit faster on my rollerblades. <laughs> that is awesome, man. That's awesome. And I, you, you like use the words in the book. I was fearless, restless, and reckless, and relentless—a tiny blonde ball of energy. Um, were you that way all the way through your teens then? What did you come up, like a jock, or were you a, a, you know, an outdoorsman? What kind of kid were you? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm very thankful, you know, now 30 years in hindsight, uh, looking back, I'm very thankful that, uh, and I think the most important thing to say before kind of my answer is, uh, I truly feel like take me now, take me as I was in the hospital, as a Marine before the hospital, high school, teenage years, and as far back as I can remember and that we've documented, I feel like I'm the exact same person. I'm just getting getting older every year. Uh, but I've always been energetic. I've always loved life. Uh, I've always been easily amused and fascinated by things. And I think one of the most important foundations that really uh, allowed me to recover the way I did to be the Marine that I was is I've always accepted challenge. Now, yeah. whether that was sitting with my dad when I was young in the recliner and getting him to probably to him very painstakingly sit there with me for hours on end until I mastered how to blow a bubble with gum or, <laughs> you know, on the sports field growing up and through high school, I've always accepted, maybe not at times thrive, but I've always accepted and been driven by challenge. And, you know, that really led into the reason why I joined the Marine Corps, not the military. I joined the military to uh, myself and my life and my path and now my body to a greater purpose and something bigger than myself or any one individual. But I joined the Marine Corps specifically because I had always welcomed challenge and, and loved the idea of being pushed, whether that was another sprint on the football field, you know, a paper in school, like whatever it was. But, you know, I wanted the Marine Corps, and I thought that the Marine Corps, and what I was looking for and longing for is uh, I wanted something that would push me to and past all the limits, physically, mental, or emotionally, that I had ever known. And I wanted something that would push me so far that when I got to that point, I was pushed so far that the only thing I could really do is look deep down inside myself. Uh, to figure out who I really am and what I can really become. And uh, safe to say the Marine Corps gave me what I was looking for. <laughs> yeah, right on. And, and and that they do, which is why if you really wanted to push yourself, I, I forgive you. Because, see, as a Navy veteran, I really was hoping you'd be one of our boys. But in a way, <laughs> I guess we're all kind of hey, the well, ma ma Major respect to, to the, to the uh, <laughs> boys and girls in blue, though, that's for sure. They, um, you know, I'm sure we'll get into it, but. Uh, my Navy doctors and staff and everyone at Walter Reed, like I, I could never for the rest of my life say enough about the Navy. So, Oh, right on. Yeah, man. Yeah, brother. Now, I, let's talk about the deployment, right? Okay, so you joined the Marines. Real quick, what year did you join the Corps? 
2009. Yeah, 2009, right, right. So Surge era had already been going on, and when you joined, there was no question, right? You knew you were going to get into some stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, like I definitely wasn't naive and thinking, oh, like I'm just going to have an easy four years, whatever. I don't think I really ever thought, you know, like, oh, I'm I'm 100% going to be in the worst combat zone in the world and exposed to firefights every single day. Not that I was naive about it, but I think the military is is a path of unknown. And so uh, I wasn't uh, in denial about the risk or anything like that. Uh, But I think thinking about, you know, getting shot at every day and or injured, I think it's just too surreal to comprehend if you haven't kind of been there and done that. And especially if you haven't even raised your right hand and gone off to boot camp yet. But no matter what, even if I could see down the road and I knew I was going to be deployed in a combat zone, potentially be injured, you know, my will and my drive and my purpose for joining, no matter what lay ahead of me, all of those things, completely overpowered and overshadowed any hesitation or reservations that I had. And I think the only reason I bring that up is because I think it's so indicative of your era. Right. By 06, by 07, by 08, man, there'd been firefights. There'd been Ramadi. There'd been Sutter City. There'd been Fallujah. Nasty fighting. And, um, you know, you guys knew, man. And and the Marines, special breed. Because, like, you guys don't join for desk jobs. I mean, some some of them get them occasionally, but at the most part, man, you guys, you guys joined a fight. Uh, I just want to read here real quick. Can you tell me a little bit more about uh, the toll that it took on the 2-9? September 30th, Lance Corporal Timothy M. Jackson had been killed by an IED. Then in mid-November, IEDs had taken two more of our other guys. By the end of our seven-month deployment, we'd lost almost two dozen men. Amazing Marines and sailors, all of them. One of those remarkable Marines was our squad leader, Zach Stinson. We stepped on an IED that had been placed underground near a wall that separated two villages. The scariest thing about an IED is that without a metal detector, a well-placed one can be almost impossible to spot, even in broad daylight. You're lucky if the person who placed the IED is inexperienced or lazy because they will leave red flags like disturbed dirt or a small trash pile that looks like it might have been constructed to hide something. On November 9th, about 1 p.m., we were walking on patrol through one of the dried up irrigation canals that crisscrossed the landscape. We're scanning the terrain for the Taliban and making our way to the next town we needed to secure when another dreaded explosion went off. The shockwave of the blast rippled through our patrol. I was the fourth man in the patrol. The cloud of dust engulfed me as the debris rained down. The stomach-wrenching curiosity of who had been hit began to sink in. And it took a few seconds to locate Stinson because he'd been blown about 15 feet and was on the other side of the wall of the canal. We found him folded in half like a lawn chair. His one remaining foot was up by his head and his legs were mangled. I got injured um, 12 days after uh, Corporal Stinson was injured and after Lance Corporal Hughes got killed later that night. But that was four months into our deployment. Um, and every single day, because, you know, people ask me, you know, was it like just the attack that day that, that, you know, when you got injured, was that like the main fighting you did? But uh, it's still crazy, crazy and surreal to say, but every single day of our entire four-month deployment, from sunup to sundown, was a vicious and constant fight for survival. It was never, not one day was ever, uh, I wonder if we're going to get shot at today. It was, I wonder when we're going to get shot at today. And so that just to give a little context, but yeah, um, November 9th, uh, the worst, you know, it's never good when you have any Marines injured or killed or Navy corpsmen. Uh, but that was the worst day of my deplo- deployment uh, because you're right. I saw my squad leader after searching for him because the IED blew him about 20 feet away into the other side of the wall. Uh, I remember at the, the first, you know, split second glance I got at him, 
And I feel like such a millennial for saying this, but I saw him and it was like a, it was like a, an intersecting point uh, and like a collision in my brain because, you know, we had, we had trained and we had obviously practiced putting on tourniquets and all of these things going out to Mount town and 29 palms and just getting real, real life quote unquote training. But, you know, that one moment represented what, you know, we all see our entire lives in the movies. And so I saw him and the injuries, I mean, he was an immediate double amputee and we did not think that he was going to survive at all. And so for one split second that I initially saw him, I thought, Oh my gosh, that is so insane. It's like, it's, it really is like, just like the movies, that's how bad it was. Mm. And so, you know, after that split second, we all got online on the wall and we're fighting because just so anyone listening, uh, you know, that, thankfully has not experienced combat in Afghanistan. What the enemy enemy will do is they'll wait until they hear an explosion or an IED go off, and then they'll run and capitalize by attacking, hoping to create more casualties because they know that our Navy corpsman will never leave his Marine slash his patient, and Everyone with him, us Marines, will never leave a fellow Marine, no matter what, even if we know we're not all going to make it. And so we immediately started this vicious fight with the Eastern Village, waiting on Zach's medevac to come. But, um, yeah, you know, Zach, he, uh, if he wouldn't have made it, this would be a lot harder to talk about, but uh, it's still even so surreal to say today, but you know, with his final, what we thought and what he thought were his final moments, uh, he told us to look after his wife and child that had yet to be born. His wife was about halfway through her pregnancy on our deployment. And so, um, oh, wow. you know, I appreciate you asking because that not only shows people, you know, wow, these injuries really are real. There really are people out there even if we don't hear about it every day, raising their right hand and giving their limbs and their lives for this country and for the ideals that our country was founded upon. Uh, but also it shows um, the family aspect of it. Yeah. And, you know, Zach wouldn't have made it. His wife not only would have been, you know, a widow, but she would be going through her pregnancy and raising their first daughter you know, completely on her own after her husband gave his last full measure of devotion. But, you know, that story turns out in the most positive, incredible way. Not only did he survive, but I guess, unfortunately, he is completely outnumbered by enemy forces with not one daughter, but two now. <laughs> so he's got three women in the household. But uh, Zach is doing amazing. He is absolutely crushing life. He actually just came in second in hand cycles at the Marine Corps Marathon a couple of weeks ago. And, um, I mean, he's just crushing marathons all over the country. And so he's doing really great. But, That's awesome, uh, you know, these, these sacrifices are real and the injuries are real. And I'm so thankful he's doing well. You know, for every guy that doesn't recover or girl that doesn't recover and is doing well, you know, there's a story of sadness and heartbreak. But, yeah, that that was a rough day, man. But uh, you know, I'm at least thankful you know I'll be here to continue to tell the sacrifices of my fellow Marines and those in in two nine and you know all of our troops. Yeah, buddy, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to bring it up because it is a family. And uh, I just want to read this one line that I thought was kind of funny. Not funny, haha! But this is just such a Marine thing to say. So like. <laughs> yeah. After I, think, he stepped, I think there's a couple of those throughout the book. Oh my god! Like like every other page, it's like yeah, you. you this is definitely the way Marines talk. Um, <laughs> he gets blown up. He gets folded like a lawn chair. You describe. He gets thrown about you know fifteen thirty feet from where the explosion was. You guys couldn't find him at first. By the time Christopher Doc, the corpsman with your division there, uh, found him, 
He says, I think Stinson's dead. It didn't seem possible that anyone could survive that. And incredibly, you guys just all hear Stinson yell, I'm not dead. I just can't move. Like, I love that. Like, you guys are all sitting there thinking out loud, and the doc is, like, heartbroken. And, like, I, I don't know. I think he's dead. And then all of a sudden, hear a salty, you know, call from about 20 feet away. I'm like, I'm over here, idiots. Get over yeah, yeah. here. I just yeah, can't like, move. Come on, guys. Get it together. That's good stuff. All right. Well, it shows the family that you are. And I wanted to point that out because, you know, these Medal of Honor books, these – the guys that that win the glowing awards, I've 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 talked to you, I've talked to Bellavia, I've talked to Dakota Meyer, um, and we're going to get into what the meaning of the medal is. But you guys are not about these books for your personal glory. In fact, every memoir has got so many other names in it that you guys would rather have in the title than your own name. So I respect the heck out of that. But it can't go unnoticed. The story of this damn grenade. So I guess you're on like a rooftop. You're doing like Overwatch. Your buddy and you, Nick are on post, sitting against our Afghan sandbag recliners, you called them, jokingly. Yes. <laughs> and, oh, you were, had. and you were ironically joking about how to get off the roof if a grenade makes it to you. You write, presumably there's a soft sound and a small puff of dust as something lands near our feet, but I don't remember it. All I knew is that my body reacted instinctively before my mind even registers what it is. Then suddenly it feels like I've been hit really hard in the face and can't see a thing. It is as if I am looking at a TV with no connection, just white and gray static. My ears are ringing extremely loudly, but my body is numb. There is no connection, no through line, no logical progression of events. I just remember heat, laughter, and then a massive impact as all of my senses go haywire for reasons I can't explain. Everything happened at once. That's crazy, man. So that's the moment, yeah. huh? So you guys are just sitting up there joking and smoking, hanging out, standing watch, looking for bad guys, but just essentially that those kind of like mind-numbing, boring moments at times where you're like, you're not sure if you should be paranoid, you don't know what's up, but like you're, you're, you got your guard down a little bit. And then you see that thing go plop and just first thing, jump at it. That was your first instinct. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, Still, like hearing you recount it, I mean, even though I've been living it the past almost 10 years, writing about it in this book the past two, four years, it still doesn't get any less crazy or surreal to hear or think about, even though it happened to me. But yeah, I think it's important to note that nothing comes from me as an eyewitness. I mean, uh, like the medal, the investigation, the events surrounding that moment uh, and leading up to the impact, everything came from a very extensive and thorough, as you saw in the book, uh, but just for any listeners, came from a very extensive and thorough two-year and over 250-page investigation done by the Marine Corps and Department of Defense. But, yeah, we were towards the end of our four-hour shift on post, on guard, and um it was just myself and Nick up there. And, uh, yeah, they, the enemy, just like every day, initiated a daylight attack. And during that attack, the first three grenades that were thrown over the walls and into the compound, and the fourth grenade was thrown and landed in very close proximity to us on the roof. And I don't remember seeing it, hearing it, thinking about it, uh, but yes, you're correct. My, uh, I felt like I got hit really hard in the face. My vision was like looking at a TV with no connection, just white and gray static. My ears were ringing extremely loudly. And, uh, I was just so confused and disoriented and I was thinking, okay, yeah, like I'm pretty sure I was in Afghanistan. I think I was on a roof. But what could have injured me that bad on a roof? Maybe I got off of the roof, went on a patrol, stepped on an IED, and the roof is just the last thing I can remember. Uh, but that, and this is going to kind of allude and, and help your, uh, you know, point to Marine's humor, but that was those thoughts were interrupted by what I thought was my buddies pouring warm water all over me. And I'm thinking – all right, guys, really? Like, in this banged-up state I'm in, you're still messing with me right now? And so uh, 
a couple seconds of that, and that final confusing piece gave me the surreal and unfortunate realization that what I was feeling was not warm water, that it was blood, and I was profusely bleeding out. And uh, I knew just from our medical training that we get and physically how I felt, I knew that, unfortunately, my time was limited. So I thought about my family, and I said a quick prayer for forgiveness. And when I thought about my family, I thought about my mom specifically and how devastated that she was going to be that I did not survive. And then after that, I said a quick prayer for forgiveness and anything I had done wrong. And, uh, you know, the final step, I guess you could say, was a tiredness and exhaustion, like, completely and quickly consumed, like, every fiber of my being. And I knew that was it. And so uh, I just got really tired and closed my eyes for what I thought was the last time on this earth. And I woke up roughly five weeks later on the other side of the world in a military hospital in D.C. There was snow outside on my hospital room window pane. And my first sight was slowly opening the only eye I had left to Christmas stockings that my mom had hung on my room or hung on my wall to decorate my room for the holidays. But, you know, even though I don't remember it, if I had to guess or if I had to say why the events and the action that took place, why it did, uh, first of all, my love and respect and wanting to take care of and look out for my best friend and fellow Marine, Nikki Frazio, that I'm just so thankful and privileged and honored to have served with when we did, you know, my love and respect for him. And the second reason is from the moment that bus door is ripped open by that drill instructor and you jump out and you stand on those yellow footprints at Paris Island or Marine Recruit Depot San Diego, from the moment you step on those yellow footprints, just like all the Marines in history have done before you, it's ingrained you into you every single day are incredible, courageous, and rich history and legacy of the Marine Corps and the Marines that have come before us. Those Marines that uh, you know, covered grenades for their fellow Marines in Vietnam and at 17, 18, 19 years old, when they were told, you're probably not even gonna survive to make it onto the beaches of World War II, you know, knowing the cost and, and the inevitable outcome, they charge for it anyway. And so to be, to be taught those things and told those things and think about those things and to wear the uniform of the United States Marine, uh, even though I don't remember what happened on the roof, uh, it's, you know, they, they, they build us and they mold us and, and train us to, when the time comes, to want to be courageous and want to step up for our fellow Marines who they teach us, you know, their lives are just as important, if not more important than our own. And so even though I don't remember anything, I'm just so yeah. thankful and proud that I could step up in a way that I needed to, when I was called upon to be a friend and fellow Marine, you know, that I was in that moment and hopefully you know, making those Marines that have gone before us and looking down on us proud. Mm, so well said and uh, really underscores why you guys do look at each other to this day. I mean, you could be out, you know, the Marines for like half a lifetime and you guys will see another one and you'll still say Semper Fi. Always, <laughs> yeah. always faithful, man. Always faithful. And it's, mm -hmm. uh, you know what, man, that totally underscores why you all say that so often. I love the chapter, uh, The Past is in the Past. I, you know, because it's something that I think speaks universally to so many people that will read this book. You do not have to be a veteran. You do not have to be into military culture. You do not have to understand or have served or have a relative that served or even like war stories to get something from this book. Because the past is in the past is, a, is something that we all need to understand, feel, and we need to practice it. 
um, picking up after that uh, moment you open your eyes and you're in Walter Reed, the snow on the ground, and you got Christmas stockings all around you. You're right, my surgeries were only a few days apart, and there were always people in my room coming to visit or something happening to keep me interested. As well, I was out of it a lot during the first few months, which I'll say, of course you were, bro. You're going through surgeries. You get a lot of <laughs> medications going on. I hope they kind of kept you out of it. Uh, but the more you came back to yourself, the more pressure you started to feel uh, to be strong emotionally for everyone else around you. It wasn't pressure from the family, and it wasn't pressure from, like, your mom. But talk to me about that pressure. Like, you felt a kind of pressure laying there that I don't think a lot of people think about. Because when you get hurt, you know what? This isn't something that you would think in your mind. But sh- share with me what that pressure was like. You felt an obligation to do what? To, to be... To be strong and positive for yeah. all those around me. But to go deeper, the hardest part of my entire three-year recovery in this journey has been... Uh, and knowing that my parents, my family, my brothers were suffering through this burden of injury and recovering from a hand grenade, uh, something that I volunteered for that they didn't ask for. And, you know, they always tell me, you know, it's not well, you know, at the time during those three years, you know, it's not a burden. We're honored and we love and we want to take care of you as your parents. So I knew that that they were going to be there. It was just I didn't want them going through the pain and suffering with me. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I was positive uh, no matter how you look at it. And I was motivated and, and uh you know, I was never just so down and out of it that I couldn't function or put on a smile. But, uh, you know, I was, I am their oldest son and, and, and one of their children. So, you know, when I'm sitting there breathing through a tube and I'm in so much pain that I can't help but for tears to run down my face because my arm feels like it's about to fall off because I just got out of a 13-hour surgery where they hammered three rods into every single one of my bones, just like times like that. And when I couldn't even get out of the bed and there was a team of six people around me holding all my tubes just so I could try to maneuver in the bed to where I could go to the bathroom in a bedpan, like I just hated and it was so hard on me. Just mentally and emotionally knowing that uh, I know that my parents, you know, it was it was devastating to them to see me like that and to see me going through that pain and the hallucinations and to see me struggling to breathe through this tube out of my neck and panicking all the time, thinking that I'm not getting enough air and fighting with my heart rate monitors. And, and you know, my dad, the third time that I coded and flatlined, wasn't fresh off the battlefield it was days if not a week or two after i had got to walter reed so you know for the children out there listening and for the parents out there listening you know my my monitors flatline and i died right there on the bed and my dad was on shift taking care of me in my room so for them to go through things like that it was just really hard on me but that helped me to really stay strong and positive and push myself really hard so I could improve from that state that I was in to, uh, you know, to get better for not only myself, but for all of those recovering with me, because yeah. it truly is a family effort. And, you know, for every wounded warrior in the bed, there's a whole family on the other side of the bed. Amen, brother. And you bring that story to life uh, in and around page 179, 180. You're talking about trying to eat cereal. You're at a kitchen counter. You've had all this work done. You've gone through all these surgeries. I mean, you still got more to go, but you're like knee—you're like knee deep now in the rehab. So you're all stitched up and held together by staples at this point, and uh, struggling to hold on to the spoon and the milk, the cereal even dribbling down your chin. You—you you suddenly said you felt something break inside you. Like every emotion, every fear, every effort to protect my family from my pain came pouring out faster than the cereal. I couldn't chew. 
It was 10 p.m. after another exhausting day of physical therapy and wound care, and you just wanted a bowl of cereal. Ironically, it was Wheaties, the breakfast of champions, so it felt like it might be a major victory for you if you could get this done. For a second, you're just a normal guy pouring yourself a bowl of cereal there at the kitchen counter. Just a normal guy. You felt strong. You felt hopeful that you're just going to have a normal moment. You write, I raised the spoon to my mouth to take the first bite, and then reality came flooding back. I couldn't chew. I didn't have the luxury of forgetting. My injuries wouldn't let me. The sound of your mom walking into the kitchen hadn't registered, and maybe you were too upset to pay attention, you wrote. She had peeked in just to say hi. When she saw you slumped over the counter with your shoulders heaving, she clicked into mom mode. I wanted to share this minute with you just to give your mom a huge shout out here. But amazing, she writes, or you write, I think it was the first time she'd ever seen you have any real raw emotion. She knew something was deeply wrong, and she ran across the room, and she's like, are you okay? Are you in pain? And you're crying. And you looked up, and you just choked out one devastating question, and you said, look at me. Who's ever going to love me again? And in that moment of silence, you pulled your head up, and you looked at her face, and you could see that your words absolutely broke her heart. But she went into mom mode. I mean, she just... She just made it all better, like only moms can do. Yeah, I'm, I mean, pretty much. I mean, she gave me a hug, and she just said over and over and promised me that not only are you going to be better one day, but all this will be behind you, and someone is going to, you're going to be happy, and someone is going to love you forever. And, um, yeah, that was uh, that was it. I mean, that was... And I, I can't say it, like, fixed me immediately completely. And I'm like, oh, okay, like, yep, you're right. That's that's cool. Like, let me just get up and go to bed. Uh, but that's what I needed in that moment. And it helped me in the next few moments to realize that the past truly is the past. What happened, happened. And I think people don't focus on this enough because it's such – you know, it can be such a hard pill to swallow, but the past is truly the past. No matter what happened, you're not changing it. You, know, you can get better from it, but you're not you're not fixing it. Mm-hmm. And so, I realized in that moment, you know, with her help and and me just looking inside myself, that no matter what you're going through, whoever is listening out there. You really, you know, you cut out the noise in life and, and you're at these crossroads and these problems and life situations. And along with realizing that, you know, the past is the past, cut out the noise and you really only have two options. And that is stand up and to take that small step forward. Or you're going to sit at that kitchen counter for the rest of your life. And you don't need to know you don't have to have a plan. I think that's another thing people get hung up on. You don't have to have a plan. You don't have to know what tomorrow holds. You don't have to know what the next hour of therapy or surgeries hold. You just have to take that small step forward. And everyone's struggle is unique. I'm not telling you to hurry it up. Everyone's struggle is unique. And you need to heal in your own time. And if that takes a day or a month, or a year. That is completely okay. But when the time is right, you have to realize you either move forward or you stay exactly where you are. And that is what I realized. You know, that moment at the kitchen counter was very low and very difficult, but I'm so thankful for it because, you know, the the hardest of lessons in life teach us, you know, the most beautiful the uh, most beautiful of lessons. And that is exactly what that moment did, as tough as it was. Mm-hmm. I got to admit, man, I'm a big, tough guy. And uh, I still, man, I, I still tear up when I when I recount that to somebody. I tried to explain it to my wife, that line in the book. And uh, you got me going, man. <laughs> you got me going. <laughs> 
All right, one switch because we've both been to the same bar, it looks like. In fact, I knew the bartender pretty well at Union Jack's in Bethesda. I knew Katie back in the day. And looks, oh, nice. looks like at one point in time, you and some of your homeboys decided to break out of Walter Reed for a little bit there in, down to, in uh, Bethesda and head down to my old stomping grounds. Because the full disclosure, <laughs> I'm from nice. Bethesda, Maryland. That's my hometown. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I spent a lot of time down there. And uh, so you and your buddies escape. You get out, go have a little bit of drink. You have some fun. And you're talking about your Marine buddy, Taranzo. And... <laughs> This I just absolutely love, but <laughs> you tell the story in the book about, like, he's up from D.C., and he had, like, a pretty tough upbringing. Like, I mean, he's he's kind of, um, you know, lack of a better word, kind of gangsta gangsta, right? I mean, grew up in the hood. And yeah, back back in the day, he was. Yeah, I mean, he got some, he, he's got some tough Latino brothers. And so you walk into the bar and you're going to meet with them and, and, and you're still, you know, you've been going through so many surgeries and so many months after months of all this rehabilitation. You're probably not ready or even aware of like how to throw down or how to bro down with some tough, tough guys. And you're looking at these dudes and I can only imagine like shaved head, tatted, looking all like the stereotype. And then I love this one line you write. So you sit down and you're hanging out with them and one of them says... You've been through some shit for your brother, Vato. So you're our brother forever. We're always here for you. And just like that, you're right, the ice broke, and then we were just four guys laughing and talking at a bar. Tell me how much friendship means, and, and tell me about that friendship. Yeah, it was definitely a, a, an interesting experience because, you know, I had never been around, and I didn't know whether it was how to address or talk to or um, I didn't really know how to be uh, around two people that were still, you know, actively in the gang life. I didn't think any, I wasn't scared. I didn't think anything negative. Uh, It's just, you know, I had never uh, been around uh, people that were associated with that. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, they did. They immediately showed me love and, they told me that, uh, you know, if anything ever happened, that they hoped that they could step up for their brothers like I did for mine. And that really meant a lot. But also, that moment showed me that, you know, our scars, even if for very different reasons, uh, we had come from obviously very different backgrounds or walks of life, but our scars, no matter how we got them, uh, created a bridge for us. And, uh, you know, even if for different reasons, we both knew pain and hurt and loss. And so, uh, yeah, it was an, I mean, just looking at the moment itself, it was awesome. You know, they threw their arms around me, gave me a hug. We had a great time, you know, but to go deeper than that, uh, I realized that scars really do connect us. And even if, um, you haven't been exactly through what someone else has. You still know what those negative feelings that come from suffering feel like and those long, dark, hard, and sometimes painful nights. And so, uh, yeah, but that's definitely my favorite chapter, actually. Chapter 13, <laughs> Don't Hide Your Scars. And, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, that was a unique experience, and I'm so thankful that that happened in Toronto. I mean, he is. He's out now, but uh, I still see him more often than not, and uh, he's doing awesome. He's got a family, and he is just such an amazing person, but he was even a greater Marine. So uh, I wasn't expecting that, you know, uh, occurrence in that meeting, but I'm so thankful it happened because it really does play a, uh, a really important piece to this book. That's awesome, man. Don't hide your scars. And what I love is the fact that you can also connect the scars with, like, other sorts of, like, marks. I mean, like, obviously your scars, war hero, violence of war, uh, surgeries, you know, that's what scarred you. Uh, But to compare it to, you know, the guys that maybe had some disprivileged lives or didn't grow up with all the opportunities and ended up getting covered in tats and uh, looking like the gang prison life, you know. I mean, those are all different forms of our scars, and theirs comes from a kind of pain different than your kind of pain but as real as your kind of pain and the fact that you say to embrace 
the roots of that pain and 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 know that there's more that brings us together than rips us apart. Uh, so powerful. And to top it all off, I just love the fact you're walking into a, a bar with a couple real tough, a couple real tough brothers sitting there. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, let me see. You're going to fail, and that's okay. Another chapter I absolutely loved. But when you write, you're going to fail, and that's okay. Like, obviously, we look at your heroic comeback from this devastating injury, and we look at the Medal of Honor and all that. But uh, why is it important to know that we're going to fail? Why is it imp- like when did you fail on your path? Or were there I mean, just days you, you felt you, like you were failing and like it wasn't going to happen? And like, that's what we, is that what I'm supposed to embrace? I mean, I'm still, I'm still failing, even if it's trying to d- button up buttons on my shirt for events that I'm doing, you know, tomorrow. Uh, or you could look at it failing every day at things I couldn't do in therapy. Uh and then I talk about in the book, but the third marathon I did is the only one that I really trained and trained hard for and the one that I wanted to get a sub four-hour time. And, uh, I mean, people can read exactly what happened, but I finished uh, two, over two hours past my mark, and I was I was not only bummed but pretty hard on myself, but – Again, that tough moment taught me a, a really beautiful lesson, and that is, like, oh, uh, I mean, to say, you know, you're going to fail is, like, the most obvious thing in life. Like, no one should have to be told that. But it's, I mean, it's so true and so important to say because, you know, whether it's everyone trying to look perfect on social media or, you know, uh, I, I don't really know where it's coming from um, as far as just, like, us being conditioned to think that we should always be succeeding or we should always try to, you know, be number one in the class or the best Marine. Like, yes, those are all great goals. But, I mean, think of all, you know, Think of all the amazing things throughout history, whether it's an invention, a speech. I mean, anything you look at, like there was failure along the way. I mean, the classic, you know, light bulb, like trying hundreds of times and finally, you know, making this thing work. You have to fail. You not only, I mean, you have to fail not only because you just can't be perfect all the time, but you have to fail and you have to hit those rock bottom moments and you have to experience and taste defeat in any and all aspects of life so you can be better and stronger once you fail and you learn from it. And that way you can not only be better and stronger, but you go forward more educated on life and yourself. You learn how to handle and tackle future situations and problems better. So, yeah, I think maybe that's just like another tough pill to swallow but and for people to hear. But, but not only telling people that you're going to fail, but that it's absolutely okay. And it's not just okay. It really, if you think about it, it's essential. That's awesome, man. And I'm so damn glad to hear you say that because that's the medicine that is something we need to take almost every day, whether you're a true success or you're still scrapping for it. Um, just so well said, man. And I'm so glad you put that in the book. Uh, we'll wrap here with this, uh, that we are more than a rack, more than a ribbon rack and a resume. That's, that's one of the last chapters. And I love this. I've heard this again from some of the other Medal of Honor recipients I've spoke with. Uh, but they say, you know, as you wrote, the thing I want people to understand is that the Medal of Honor is a heavy distinction. It only weighs a couple of ounces, but the physical weight is nothing compared to the weight of what it represents. Everything that medal symbolizes, not just the circumstances under which it was earned, but the broader conflict of which that action was a part and all of the losses that are a result of that conflict add weight. Talk to me about why we are more than just that medal, why we are more than just a ribbon rack or a resume. You know, for my journey, uh, that medal, while an incredible moment that I'm so thankful and honored and humbled that my country recognized me, uh, 
I'm not just a Medal of Honor recipient. I mean, I've I've gone after getting injured, graduated college, backpacked across Europe, uh, worked on and building myself up to become a professional slash motivational speaker. And so, uh, you know, I think that chapter is important for everyone and, and to think about veterans specifically, you know, transition is obviously very hard and it it can be looked at and applied to, to any part in life, transitioning jobs, uh, transitioning new places to live, transitioning veterans, you know, you give up this incredible bond and this purpose of waking up every day, knowing you're doing this, this, uh, just something greater than yourself and, and you're truly contributing. And so, uh, you know, to, to quote unquote, hang the uniform up and to get out and, and transition. Yes, that is such a, a big and important and, and a kind of defining part of our lives as veterans and service members. But, you know, you can do so much more and you are about so much more, you know, treasure that, that time of service and those relationships you have. And I know, you know, having a family and finances and all these things can add to the stress of transitioning, but, you know, just know that just like the metal to me, you know, that service doesn't define you and you have, you're, you're breathing you're waking up every day. You you have a chance at life, and and hopefully and thankfully you haven't tasted just the absolute darkness and void of death like I have. So you know, please take it from me and listen to me that you know you wake up, you're breathing, you have this life and this opportunity. You know, take advantage of that and and make the most of it. And you know, I, this is a little bit of a tangent, but also with transitioning and veterans, you know, I understand the guilt of, you know, you survived. I get the, the tough and questions that you'll never have answers to, you know, why me? But, you know, why not you? You're here, you know, make those, you know, live life and make those who are looking down on us proud. And, and keep in mind that, Everyone that has served voluntarily as they felt called to do got up when they could have done anything else in life, raised their right hand to give up to their life for their country. And so it, it's tough to say, but, you know, we all raised our right hand to give up to our lives and, and they knew that and they maybe not fully understood, but they knew the potential risk. And so, you know, if you're down and out because of that, or you're transitioning, or you've given up that uniform, you know, just know that, yes, be proud of that. And that is amazing. And, you know, you raise your right hand when so few others did and have, but it doesn't define you. And you, you're about so much more than that. You know, you can be a dad, a brother, uh, you know, just a, an American contributing to, to this world. So, uh, you know, no matter what, who you are, where you're from, what you're about, what your job is or what you're doing or where you've been, just know that no, not one specific moment or action or circumstance in anyone's lives, you know, determines them or who they are. And so you can always get better. And just like I said at the beginning of the interview, all you have to do is take that small step forward. I love it, man. Absolutely love it. The book is You Are Worth It, Building a Life Worth Fighting For. And for the last hour, I've been talking to Medal of Honor recipient and Marine, Kyle Carpenter. Man, thank you so much, brother. It's just so cool to hear you talk about this book and, uh, you know, just just preach, brother. Preach, because we need to hear it. And uh, you did a great thing with the book, man. And uh the only thing I want to do next is possibly hang with you and Zach Brown. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, we'll work on that. But uh, thank you so much, uh, you know, for your service, but also continuing to get the good word out there and, you know, helping me 
lending me your platform for an hour and just try to get the good word out about helping people through their struggle and what the human body and spirit can make it through. But uh, thanks for your time, and this has been good, and I look forward to uh, round two down the road. Yeah, brother man, anytime you're in the D.C. area, we want to hang out, so I'll take you up on that next time I hear that you're in town. And in the meantime, keep flipping through. Buy the book. You are worth it. Building a life worth fighting for. Medal of Honor recipient Kyle Carpenter. Always good, man. I will talk to you on the flip. Hey, thanks, brother.